Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. Throughout Matthew, there have been foreshadowings of uh, the cross. But it is in our text for today that we get the clearest exposition of what is really happening. We will be going through Matthew 26, 17 through 29, in what is traditionally called the Last Supper. Here, Jesus explains for his disciples the significance of what's happening. If one is looking for Matthew's theology of the cross, here it is. Of course, other bits contribute too, uh, but this is the clearest exposition. In this session, I would like to briefly look at seven features of Jesus' theology of the cross. I'll say them ahead of time so you can keep your eye out for them as I read. According to this section, uh, Jesus reveals that the cross is a Passover, the cross is a tragedy, the cross is a plan, the cross is chosen, the cross is a covenant, and the cross is a temporary event. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, his disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The cross must be seen as a Passover. From the plotline of the story, it's important that all of this happens around Passover because this was one of the times when all Jewish males were required by law to come to Jerusalem to keep the temple at the feast. Uh, but there's a deeper significance to the time of year being Passover. Besides, this is just how Jesus ends up in Jerusalem. The meal which Jesus uses to explain the significance of his death is the Passover meal. There's a bit of uh, historical difficulty here, since the Gospel of John indicates that Jesus died on Passover. There have been a number of suggested resolutions. Uh, some look more closely at the Gospels and say there's no seeming contradiction, either that the synoptics don't portray this meal as a Passover, or that John doesn't, but that seems forced. Some say that to accommodate the huge amount of people, Passover was observed on two separate days. Another option, which I think is slightly preferable, is that Jesus knows he's going to die the next day. Um, and so he celebrates Passover a day early, like when I celebrate Christmas with my in-laws on Christmas Eve, because I know we'll be somewhere else the next day. But we shouldn't let the historical question crowd out what is happening theologically. 
This fits so well with what we've seen before about Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the new Moses. He is hid from an angry king. He comes out of Egypt. He fasts 40 days. And he's in the desert for 40 days. He goes on the mountain to give the law with its blessing and its curses and so on. And now we have the new Moses giving the new Passover. We have also talked about the idea of a return from exile. God's people are in a place of banishment and condemnation, went out of the land, and Jesus' action undoes the exile, bringing them back into the land, so to speak. This is one of the ways salvation is pictured in Matthew. But just as in Exodus, uh, the way God sets his people free and brings them into the land is through the Passover. Second, the cross must be seen as a tragedy. In Matthew's Last Supper account, six of the 13 verses are devoted to Judas's portrayal. As has already been mentioned, and we'll discuss further, a whole lot of theology is going on here, and, and everything should be seen as happening under divine sovereignty. And yet, any understanding of the cross that does not see it as an act of heinous betrayal really doesn't do it justice. We aren't sure exactly about all the reasons Judas did what he did. Other Gospels go out of their way to betray him as greedy. Um, Looking outside the Bible, uh, the pseudepigraphal Gospel of Judas from the second century portrays him as coordinating this whole thing with Jesus. But there's no sign of that in in the biblical accounts. Uh, The Gospel of John emphasizes that Satan entered him and he was never truly a part of the group. But for whatever reason, uh, Judas betrays Jesus. Matthew gives us very, very little reason why. And, and, and this lack of information does something to the reader. It, it, it forces us to contemplate, are we like Judas? Without the explanation why, we are left to ponder the sobering possibility of apostasy and wonder, will I endure to the end? Am I a Judas? People turn on Jesus, and, and, and this real possibility pushes us to be steadfast. But it also means that what's about to happen should be seen as a tragedy. The cross also must be seen as sovereignly orchestrated. Uh, For the sake of time, let's connect this with it being purposeful. Uh, Both God and Jesus know what is about to happen. And tragedy though it is, both God and Jesus willingly choose the cross. Verse 24 explains again, as has been emphasized so much in the Passion uh, predictions, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. God's sovereign hand is is moving players along so that while they still exercise what we would call free will and are still morally culpable, all act according to God's predetermined end. Similarly, not only did God choose all of this, so also Jesus chooses all of this. Note the ominous way this section is set up uh, with, with the code word, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Verses 26 and 27 show this most clearly. When he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it, and he says, Take, eat, this is my body. This is an act of willfully giving himself, willfully giving his body and blood. That is his violent and gruesome execution for the benefit of his people. The cross must be seen also as a covenant. In the Old Testament, covenants were instituted, that is, inaugurated by blood, usually the killing of an animal. And that is what began the contract. 
Hebrews 9, 18-20 states, Therefore even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and of the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And of course he goes on from there to contrast this with the far greater work of the new covenant, which Jesus has inaugurated with his own blood. Uh, This is a significant part of Matthew's uh, view of salvation. God has made a covenant with his people so that we belong to him. And this happens because Jesus' blood was shed. That is, he died on the cross. Now, Mark's version has, this is my blood of the covenant, a quote from Exodus 24.8. Matthew seems to have followed suit here, though there are some manuscripts that have, this is my blood of the new covenant. Luke and Paul's versions both have new covenant. But in either situation, uh, both ideas are at play. Uh, Jesus, again, is like a new Moses, sprinkling the people with blood, bringing the people into the land. There is an allusion to Exodus 24, 8. Uh, But just like Jesus is not literally Moses, uh, neither is the covenant literally or simply the old covenant. Jesus is instead a new Moses, and that means that his covenant is a new covenant, as Luke and Paul's version clarify. This also brings in passages then like Jeremiah 31, which describe the new covenant. It seems to me that this also must be in Jesus' mind because he then goes on to say that his blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, This passage is so great in Jeremiah 31 that it bears repeating again. Uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And he he says that uh, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin will I remember no more. Uh, Let me put all of this as clearly as I can. Uh, The passages which talk about the new covenant are kingdom passages. They describe what things will be like in the end times when God redeems Israel. To be a New Testament, that is, a new covenant Christian, is to partake of the kingdom promises. Jesus has been proclaiming, chapter after chapter, that this long-awaited time was at hand. The kingdom of heaven was arriving, that is, the era of the new covenant would dawn. The basis of this new reality is the work of Jesus on the cross. I say this because there's an older dispensational idea uh, that Jesus had arrived on the scene to proclaim the kingdom of God, but that since he was rejected, the kingdom agenda was put on hold, and that in the interim, God is doing something else, building his church. Now, the unfortunate downside of this is that it neglects how the church is itself a New Testament people, partaking of the new covenant which Jesus inaugurated by his blood. Uh, That older dispensational perspective uh, fails to connect the dots. It it fails to connect the cross with the kingdom, which Jesus himself does at the Last Supper. Now, don't get me wrong. uh, There is a way in which the new covenant promises await their complete fulfillment when the Lord returns. But it's important at this juncture to emphasize that we ourselves, the church, inherit these new covenant promises. So, we have seen that the cross is a Passover. The cross is a tragedy. The cross is a plan. The cross is chosen. The cross is a covenant. 
Let me briefly point out that lastly, the cross is a temporary event. Yes, all these events crescendo and culminate in the cross work of Christ, but this is not the end. The common reference to the Last Supper actually is a misnomer. In fact, Jesus specifically denies it. No, this isn't the Last Supper. Our text finishes with, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The events are tragic. Jesus knows that all has been planned by God according to the scriptures so as to set his people free and inaugurate the covenant of the forgiveness of sins. And so he willingly devotes himself to this work and gives himself. Yet, this is not the end. As tragic as Matthew 27 will be, Jesus knows Matthew 28 comes next. There is a resurrection awaiting. There is an ascension waiting. There is another advent waiting. And his eye, even in this solemn hour, is toward the future when he will celebrate with his people again.